Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Namo tassa pakavato arhato sama samputassa. Bhutang dhammang sankang namasami. So the treat's going nicely. I think everyone's very diligent and uh, quiet and dedicated to this opportunity, so my uh, compliments to everyone, I guess. The ideas that I find, many ideas I have, I find useful, I just try to share those, of course. My own practice comes a lot from working with the, the Third Noble Truth, and Third Noble Truth is that the uh, the end of suffering is through the letting go of craving, attachment to craving. So attachment, attachment to the five kanhas, craving. These is, these are ideas that are quite uh, important in my own intellectual understanding and the way I inform my own practice. And that gives me gives me a sense of uh, direction in what I'm doing, uh, a sense of purpose. It's like a methodology in, in how I'm doing it, and so on. So um, this is the idea of grounding your practice in right understanding. If we have no sense of the direction of practice or why we're doing it, and we're just sort of trying to meditate and make the mind calm, then sort of underlying motivation can be unclear or wouldn't fall into doubt or just be missing the mark. So the if you just take that third noble truth, that the, the abandonment of craving is the end of suffering, so then you want abandonment, relinquishment, letting go is the language. And then craving is the becoming not and resistance or getting rid of and, and just being distracted in sense experience. So those are the very, very uh, fundamental ideas to understanding the four noble truths and the, the way Theravada Buddha's, Buddhism is set out. So one needs to contemplate those three types of craving to get a sense of them in your own, in how your mind works, and where do they come up, and what what does attachment to them mean, so that you become familiar in, with your own uh, conditioning and and what leads you into suffering, what leads you into uh, ways of unhappiness and misery, uh, or just not, maybe not misery, but just the minor variations on on suffering. And then suffering is a very profound word because it's not just emotional suffering, it's also not seeing the unconditioned, always being caught in the conditioned. So it's not just about being psychologically happy or physically happy or socially successful. It's not that kind of end of suffering, but it's rather looking in the wrong place for for something which is very hard to see and something which the Buddha realized. And so that's one of the things that also very much informs my my practice is this constant refrain I've been using for years. Uh, there is the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unborn, Nibbana. If there were not the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unborn, there would be no escape from birth, death, from the condition. So that's a, almost a mantra for me. 
unconditioned, uncreated, unborn, nibbana, the deathless. And then if I, if there were not that, there would be no escape from all this sickness and death. So that's different than thinking that, well, the end of suffering is if I'm, if I'm just sort of psychologically happy or kind of together in my social life and I don't put on any more pounds, stay, stay in shape. Those are good things, aren't they, to, to be physically active, and but it's not the deathless, it's not the unconditioned. So when we consider that the Third Noble Truth, then you start to work with that, the realization of Nibbana, or the realization of the unconditioned, uh, comes about through the abandonment of craving. Okay, so that's the methodology. So rather than getting something here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get something called enlightenment or the unconditioned, the sense of grasping moving towards something, which I don't even know what it is. The, the method is, is, is rather something we can do. You know, we can, we, can un, we can look at, have a good look at craving. And we can kind of figure out well, what, what would abandonment craving, what would that mean? It's something I can do. Whereas if you give me this language, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, it's good for reflection but you have to figure out how that can be realized. So, to understand one's own bhavatanha arises in ordinary life or in um, meditative life, what bhava, the whole sense of becoming uh, something, doing something, going somewhere. Now, that it's not wrong to, to plan, and, it's, and that's natural. It's not wrong to have ambition, even. It's not wrong, like... We're just finally we this week uh, we've agreed that the, the Tisserina board with uh, Adam Smith that we're going to hire him as an architect, and so we've got a contract drawn and we'll sign that contract within a month. And so finally we're going to try to we're serious about well we haven't been serious for a while but we just didn't have the resources. Uh, we can start doing the architectural drawings and design for a new meditation hall, which is uh, interesting. But now that you may think, well, that's becoming. You're becoming, you're, you're going to create something, you're doing something. Yeah, but also someone has to cook the meal, that's becoming. Right? So it's not a rejection of, of our life, actually, of our social life, of the way we live, but rather within the doing of stuff, within the making of a meal, or within the um, cleaning of the sala, within the building of a meditation hall, can we do it in a way that is an act of generosity, an act of creativity, but not become, not be caught up with tanha, not be caught, caught with the whole sense of becoming, getting rid of, or distraction. So then, then okay, this is a project, and this is going to get my mind pretty busy. Where in that project is the third noble truth? Well, I want this project to be successful. I don't want it to be a failure. Sure. Uh, I want to build a nice hall. Sure. Uh, I want everyone else to think it's a nice hall. 
That's very hard. <laughs> so uh, I realized darn well that with birth there is suffering. So now this arises, this, this, this occasion, and it seems appropriate. And there's a need, obviously, you know, we're getting crowded in this room, and, and uh, it's kind of my, my duty to do it, and so on and so forth. So then I, then I said, well, okay, I'm going to try to use this project as a way of, as a meditative experience rather than just as a construction project. So both need to be, you know, it has to be a construction project. It's not going to take place by me just sort of wishing it and creating meditation halls in my mind and manifesting in some kind of magical, mystical way. It's got to, you know, it's blood and guts, mortar and cement, and all the stuff of, of ordinary life. But within that, I'll suffer. How will I suffer? Well, I'll suffer when I want something to happen and it doesn't happen. I'll suffer when some deadline doesn't come up. I'll suffer if we don't have enough money and I, I want there to be enough money and so on and so forth. So within the project of building a meditation hall, I begin to use that to watch, well, why do I suffer here? What's the problem? And then it becomes a contemplative exercise, which is much more important than just the building of the hall. And that's what we're always trying to do in the building of a monastery that whether it's making a meal or cleaning the snow or whatever, how can we how can we do this in full consciousness, fulfilling in our duties and responsibilities and not suffer? Now, we live in a social world, we have social responsibilities, but also we live in an inner world, too. So we, we live in a world of, of snow and ice and warmth and routines and people. This is the conventional external world. And we also live in a world of flow of consciousness. And practice, practice of not suffering, is to, to know that flow of consciousness in a way of non-grasping or non-attachment. And that to, to do that is hard because we want it to be a certain way and we don't want it to be another way and we get distracted. And those are really the themes of the, for me, the way I look at the three, the three types of craving is that wanting life to be a certain way, not wanting life to be a certain way, and then being distracted by life keeps me in a realm of the conditioned. And as long as I'm doing that, as long as my life is always like, how can I get this thing to happen, or uh, how can I get this thing not to happen, or I don't want this, or how will I be able to achieve that? Or just being distracted through through stuff, through emails, through my own projects or my own thoughts. That, that constant preoccupation with the stuff of life, as long as I'm preoccupied with the stuff of life, I'm not available to the unconditioned. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of problem is to how do you participate in the conditioned realm and yet remain available to the unconditioned. Very hard. And how do you do that? Well, that's what we're trying to do in, in meditation. We're trying to be with the breath, or be with the heart, the heart chakra, or be with body sweeping, or just be with choiceless awareness, or be with a walking meditation, or whatever, in a way where we're not caught 
and attached to the craving of becoming, to the craving of trying to get rid of, and we're not distracted. We're present. We're present, we're present, we're present. So we're still in the conditioned realm. We're still doing conditioned stuff. We're still participating in our duties, but we're trying to practice and train in doing that where we remain available all the time. And you can do that. You can shovel the snow and know you're shoveling the snow and get the get the snow shoveling done and be with it and be present and be available. Or one can be distracted and, and just rush to get the snow shovel, have a heart attack or whatever, or and just be distracted and thinking about something else and not be available. Not be available. Available to what? Well, to the unconditioned. And what is the unconditioned? Well, it's it's not something you can really find as an object. You can intuit it once you begin to know change. So that's what I've been trying, encouraging on this retreat, is to, like, in, in, the, in the simplicity of a meditation session of an hour or so, to, to learn how to uh, observe life as it changes and to contemplate, well, it's unchanging. Now, that's a very subtle kind of reflection that's very good to do in the safety and in the obviousness of a meditation sitting. Because a meditation sitting is very obvious. You sit there, you try to lock your body into some kind of good posture, try to keep your back straight, try to, try to stay here, whatever, whatever way you do it. And of course, that is a, a simple to describe, but difficult to do. And so what happens is distraction... Uh, takes over, you start to think, you start to plan, uh, or your body starts to hurt, and you start to anticipate, and all the mind, the mind is preoccupied there with thought, with bodily feeling. It's not really aware. And then something happens, you, then you notice you're just kind of preoccupied, and you, and you step back. You step back and say, what's going on? Oh, it's this way. It's this way now, and it's changing. And you begin to practice the awareness of change. Same breath, same body, same room, same heat, same people. But now there's a perspective of non-grasping, a perspective of non-attachment. And non-grasping doesn't mean that there isn't stuff. You still feel frightened or still feel annoyed at someone or still feel like you're getting somewhere or still feel like not you're getting not getting anywhere. Whatever it is, stuff's still going on, but the... The practice of non-grasping or, or knowing is, is um, not, not a judgment of that. Not, it's not a denial of anything, really. It's just seeing that uh, within the changing nature of the conditioned realm, there's the unchanging. There's peace. There's Nibbana. And our addiction to always trying to get something from the sense experiences we have, bhava tanha, or always struggling to deny something or get rid of it, vibhava tanha, or just being downright distracted, prevents that availability, prevents that possibility of knowing. Actually, if I just stop, and I just listen, and I, watch, and I observe change, I observe that behind that, the very observing is not changing, the very awareness is not changing, that's peaceful. So you can see that Craving for uh, any sense experience, the pursuit of any kind of an object, in itself, it doesn't does not point to the unconditioned. It points to the conditions. So we need to do that. So we need to 
someone has to cook the meal and they need to figure out if there's enough food and it has to be done by 11 o'clock and so on and so forth. So within that doing, within that doing, there's, there's you need focus and, and, and you need intelligence and you need uh, dexterity and all kinds of things need to happen for a, a meal to come out on time and, um, and they do. Thank you. <laughs> but is it possible to do that in a way where I remain awake all the time? Awake to the way things are? And it is. It is possible. Because you can do it with one breath. You can be awake to the changing nature of one breath. You can see it arise and cease and not get lost, not get preoccupied. And you can do that in cutting up... Uh, what are we doing? We're doing turnips just these days, aren't we? <laughs> We had industrial quantities of turnips today. I didn't. I wasn't able to finish mine off. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a real workout. Um, <laughs> so you you uh, so you cut your <laughs> you, those turnips were wicked. <laughs> I really, it was really hard. So <laughs> in the meditative life, you that's why the what I've been trying to describe, again, the way I do these things, is if I, if I set up the moment in line with the third noble truth, and so that's the language I've been using, non-becoming, non-resistance, and non-distraction. Non-distraction. Non-distraction is what I know. I'm here now. And then non-becoming. I'm not looking for any experience and non-rejection and non, non-resistance and pushing in the way. If I can establish that even in, in, in a few, you know, just in a few moments and just establish that in the present moment, then I'm in line with the third noble truth. And then if I, if I, if I understand that and I can get a feeling for it, and there, it is a feeling thing, I keep reminding myself of that and I train with a meditation object then my mind is beginning to be in line with the Third Noble Truth. And as it's in line with that, training with that, I begin to get a sense of peace in the mind because now there isn't uh, the struggle of craving, there's the end of craving, and that's what's peaceful, isn't it? When you let go of craving, that's what's peaceful. So I begin to intuit that, okay, that's how you do it. And then, I, then if I can do that for an hour in a meditation, even though my mind wanders and so on, but I keep putting that kind of fundamental understanding into my effort, uh, into the way I pay attention, into whatever practices I like to do, if that's what's motivating me, and that's what's sort of conditioning the craft of what I'm doing, or, or molding the craft of what I'm doing, then that's going to operate when I'm shoveling the snow when I'm having a shower or cutting the turnips. <laughs> and that's why, like, formal practice is so very, very important. It's not like the formal practice is you're supposed to get some blissed out gaga experience. You know that, like, Ajahn Sachita and I were talking about that. He said, that's rare. Said, sure, sure, sometimes you lift off the cushion for a bit and you think you've got something and then you struggle for three years to get it back. <laughs> But that's not really what it's about, is it? It's not. It's not getting an experience because, the you know, those kinds of experiences might come and go, and good on you if you if it does. But 
Rather, it's more like understanding what 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 we're doing and then doing it in the kind of laboratory simplicity of sitting posture for an hour, and then you have a really you have a really good chance to hone that skill because it's simple, uh, it's not complicated, and you just do it. So the skill and the strength and the understanding and the effort and all of that are constantly coming together in the hour of practice, even if you're falling asleep. Because you're trying, you're trying to wake up. Even if you're feeling annoyed at the next person because they're breathing too loud or whatever. Any these highly significant things that happen in retreats. <laughs> you kind because if you think that if you think that meditation is like this really blissed out experience you have to get, then the person who is shifting around too much next to you or whatever it is, you think that's the problem. The problem is out there somewhere, but it's not. The problem is the grasping of the khandhas, the, the preoccupation with the khandhas in some way. Whereas just knowing, like, like, like if you, I haven't heard any heavy breathers, that's always nice, we don't have one of those. <laughs> they can be really very uh, instructive, can't they? But yeah, if that happens, like you know, tomorrow, probably someone will start breathing heavy. But if that happens, just you know, what's what's the problem? Well, obviously, this idiot beside me—that's the problem. But it's not. It's aversion, isn't it? It's it's resistance. And 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 so then, if I have enough humility and and uh, interest in aversion then I'm going to use that situation of a person breathing loudly as a way of understanding, practicing non-grasping, non-craving, right? And what do I need to do that? I need to make a decision. And when the heavy breather starts doing their asthmatic attack or whatever, or pranayama, and my first reaction is, can't this guy go somewhere else? And then I have to make a decision. I'm going to use this, this dullness, this sleepiness, this heavy breathing, to look at aversion. And that, that doesn't sound like much, but quite often we don't make that decision. We just resist. We don't make the decision to look at resistance, we just struggle with resistance. We kind of know it's there, but we don't, we don't wake up to it. We don't wake up to suffering, because... Because we're heedless, I suppose, huh? or, or, or we just get caught. So to actually make a decision to look at suffering, to make a decision to see contact, feeling, craving, attachment, to really look at that as it's happening, is the decision of awakening. And then, if you do that, then it, it's practice. So, like, let's say, just um, discomfort. We all get discomfort sometime during the hour. Uh, I usually have it by 45 minutes, my ankles are hurting, whatever. It's no big deal, right? But if I don't make a decision to understand discomfort, then those last 15 minutes, I'm just sort of, I'm not quite there. I'm kind of reacting to it. I'm not noticing it. But if I make the decision, no, no, discomfort is the practice. Rather than, if I didn't have discomfort, then I could practice. No, no, discomfort is the practice right now. And I make that decision, then I'm on the game. I'm on, you know, looking at it, and I'm seeing, oh, yeah, 
with contact, there's feeling, with feeling, there's craving, with craving, there's attachment, there's suffering. So we're, okay, there's the, there's the, there's the contact, what's the feeling? Where's the, where, how's the feeling now? And what's the craving going on? And that's observation. I'm observing now a very, very simple thing, but I have to do it each time. I have to make that decision each time to actually go to the suffering. And that's the first noble truth, is to understand, to go to it. If I don't make that decision, I kind of know it's there, but I'm not really, I'm not really focused on it. That's ujjupatipano. That's a kind of direct uh, looking at practice kind of thing. Then in that example, <laughs> the discomfort is there, sure. But it's not just about discomfort. It's, it's cultivating all those qualities which are like right understanding and right effort and then patience. And, and then you see, oh yeah, there's the, there's the letting go of the craving around that. Oh, it's peaceful. Yeah, it's still the same sore ankle, but it's not, it's not, there's no resistance, there's no craving, there's no, there's no problem. Oh, that's nice, huh? Okay, and then you have to do it again, constantly, until more and more that is the natural way of one's awareness, is to go right to the discomfort, right to the craving to know it again and again. But you have to you have to make that decision. You have to decide to do that. And that, I mean, that sounds so... Of course you have to, but oftentimes we don't. We're, we're invertent or we're, we don't really go to it. So whatever it is, whatever comes up into consciousness, either in, in social interaction or in your own personal history that comes up or in the bodily formations and so on, um, this, this kind of practice of ujjupatipano, going right, right to what, what's going on, is the awakening to suffering and, and the letting go of suffering. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, like you know, sore ankles are very, very obvious. Sometimes it's not so obvious. The, the kind of, you know, your mind might really kind of be, be settling down and you've you don't need to put that much effort forth. You, you, you settle, but they can still be a very subtle looking for something, or trying to find something, and like and, and a kind of more subtle restlessness there. It's not gross. You're you're in the moment. You know what's going on, but still there isn't this kind of deep sense of settling, letting go, a deep sense of silence. There's a there's a kind of what's going on? Have I got it yet? And so it's a kind of Nebulous doubt, nebulous self-doubt, n- not not so explicit, much, much, much more um, subtle. And, and you have to go to that. You have to be awake. Oh, what is it? And, oh, yeah, there's some kind of, I should be getting something, or I'm trying to get something, or trying to figure something out, or is this it? And, and you get, well, what is it? And in the end, you really just have to trust awareness. You begin to see that, the subtle kinds of doubts and, struggles that we have and you know, just trust awareness awareness is wisdom awareness to work it out and then you say oh yeah oh okay and you get an insight around that and you try that and, the, and you settle yeah, it's, and you see the doubt you see the doubt as, a, as, a, as an object in mind and you're no longer the subject you're available now you're available because you trust in awareness and then you forget and do it again and then you forget, and you have to try again. And then you forget and try it again. This is the boring part of practice. It's like, you'd think once you had an insight, you'd have it, right? I mean, it seems a bit unfair. Okay, I got my insight. Thank you very much. <laughs>
But we forget, and this is the very disappointing part of being a human, is that even though we understand these things, lo and behold, we get caught up in our doubts and our and our aversions and all of that. So the 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 practice takes tremendous fortitude and and uh, perseverance. You just have to keep keep kind of going to the mark, going into the present moment. Remember to be with the present moment and understanding yourself. And certainly, o- over time, the the conditions of delusion. The cravings, they certainly abate. They certainly lessen. Their frequency lessens. Their power lessens. Uh, and, and the mind realizes more and more brightness and, and so on and so forth. The, the kind of the gradual nature of the path. But even then, sometimes you know, something, something grabs your attention. But if you, if you understand the kind of... This is just the really basic nature of the practice is that, that non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion... If you can awaken to that, to that way of being, then even if you're very frightened, or you feel quite painful, or you have some you know chronic physical thing going on, you can awaken to that from that perspective. Then you'll understand it. So non greed, non hatred, non delusion. So so you start to put that into into your perceptual kit. <laughs> Uh, 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 of how you approach life, you start to have like like an inner mantra, a right view, non-becoming, non-resistance, non-distraction. You set the mind up, and right? get it there, and then when when something difficult comes up, maybe some some kind of emotional purification you're going through, that's all right. Sure, it's 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 uh, difficult. It's ugly. And, and so even that, it is what it is. But then it's not about the content. It's about the attitude behind the content, isn't it? It's not about me always feeling lovey-dovey with everyone else. <laughs> but rather that when I feel aversion to someone, oh, aversion is this way. Now, aversion seems like it's resistance, but resistance to resistance, resistance to aversion itself, is something I can do. I can't say that I'm not going to be averse tomorrow because I don't own this. And that's what the texts say. If, if, if you owned it, then you could say, okay, I'll just make my emotions what I want them to be. Thank you very much. But you can't. You can't. You can't. If you can do that, good for you. <laughs> but most of us cannot de- determine what time of day we will or will not be averse. It'll just arise, won't it? So that's not wrong. That's nature. But the resistance to that, or the belief in it, or the distraction of it, or whatever, or the craving for it not to be there, that we can awaken to. So the, the you know that kind of fundamental. This is the way it is now: non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or non-becoming, non-resistance, non-distraction. You keep you keep awakening in that very open way. This is movement. This is arising. This is ceasing. This is arising, ceasing. You keep coming back to that right understanding, and that begins to dominate. Right understanding begins to dominate, rather than ego view. The non-grasping begins to dominate, rather than the attachment to craving. Why? Because the attitude has been encouraged, and because it works. Because it gives good results. It is peaceful. And there's more and more trust in that. Trust in awareness, trust in knowing change, rather than trying to change. Knowing change is very subtle, as I was saying. It's like, 
you know, just that knowing of change doesn't seem like you're going to sort this one out. Doesn't seem like enough. I should be doing more. I should be figuring it out. I should be doing some practice. This kind of compulsion to do a practice, but that is the practice. This knowing change. So you feel you feel yucky in some kind of way. What's it like? What's it really like? It arises, it stays, and it ceases. That's what it's like. Yeah. And and anicca sanya is not the usual way we. Interpret life, we interpret it through craving. I want, I don't want. Or we enjoy distraction. Or we get kidnapped by distraction. So that's the that's the compulsive, habitual, heedless way that we've been conditioned to live our lives. And then we, we you know, we come to the Dharma uh, and then we start to try to approach it differently. It's going against that. It's going against the stream of our of our habits and that's why it's so hard. That's why so that's it takes a lot of courage, actually, to go against the stream of habits. So to like to to not run away from one's fears, or to to look at anger and not hate oneself for anger, or to look at to allow jealousy to be just jealousy and not think you're you're a horrible person for that. To see that it's just arising and ceasing. So that way of constantly seeing something arise and cease, arise and cease, arise and cease, is not a preoccupation with the khandhas. You know, it's not doing anything about the khandhas. And how, what would be helpful for doing that? Well, if I do some bhavana, if I learn how to be with the breath and calm the mind, if I do some metta bhavana, and I, and I, and I come to a way of relating to life which is open-hearted, so those are those are really brilliant things to do. So we can do things, and we do. We can we can play with the conditioned realm to lay a foundation for the unconditioned. This is the the paradox of it. If there was no way, then there'd be no path, and there'd be no Buddhism. It would just be like, good for you, Buddha. <laughs> but you know, the, the Buddha said there there is a path. Right? So he has his realization, and. You know how the story goes, and he meets someone on the road, and he says, "I'm the enlightened Buddha." And the guy says, "Yeah, okay. <laughs> see, you, see you next week or something." Mm-hmm. But but then he says, "No." And then he, he devises a path. So this is for me. It's a real paradox that he figures out how to use conditions to realize the unconditioned. You wouldn't think that would be possible. You know, philosophically, if you ponder that one, how can you? How can you do anything to realize the unconditioned? Because it isn't doing already conditioned. Well, no, you can do something, but you cannot. You cannot get the unconditioned through craving, because craving, by definition, is always focusing on the conditioned. That's how craving operates. That's why it's a, a dead end. Craving has its place in the sense realm, but in terms of the uh, transcendent realization, it, it it only looks in the wrong place. Craving looks in the wrong place, and so like like if I feel jealous about something, you know, my neighbor has a bigger German Shepherd than I do, or something, <laughs> and <laughs> and I feel jealousy. Now, as a good Buddhist, you might feel guilty. Oh, I'm terrible possession. But actually, jealousy is just uh, an emotion, unpleasant maybe or whatever, and and the problem is not that, is it? So the resistance to, like, say, jealousy as an example, what, what would resistance to jealousy do? It would preoccupy with jealousy. 
wouldn't liberate you from jealousy. But if you if you see what jealousy is just this way, non-resistance, non-distraction, non-becoming. Don't even try to become a person that's not jealous, because that's still a preoccupation with jealousy. But you just don't preoccupy, you see it as change. So that's why noticing change is so brilliant. And if you can inform your, your attention with that, Anicca Sanya suggestion, you say, well, I'm going to watch this feeling of jealousy as a changing thing. That's a big step in liberation. Quite often we're not that quick. The, the, the habit, emotion or whatever, so it kind of overwhelms us. But if we do it with simple things like the breath or just ordinary sounds, then it, it starts to click in uh, on the more complicated parts of our psyche and our ego and our makeup. And then when you do that, when you have some really yucky kind of emotion and you say to yourself, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to notice the changing nature of that. Brilliant. That's practice. And it seems like it's not going to work. I should be doing something about this. I should be at least analyzing it. Where does it come from? Or maybe it was my mom. I don't know. But that's just preoccupation again. So just be like analyzing your stuff is just preoccupation. You're still in thought, you're still in the khandhas. Whereas knowing change is you're not touching it. And that's non-grasping. And then, then you have to trust in that, you have to faith in that, you have to patience. And those are the conditions we say are conducive to liberation. Patiently witnessing change. Yeah? Being uh, forgiving, noticing change. These are, these are the wholesome conditions. And any amount of that we can do in the ordinary becomes very, very useful in the extraordinary, in the difficult, in the complicated. So, I'll leave that for consideration.